This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, nonprofit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com slash donate. Support for this episode comes from the Loft Literary Center, located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, one of the nation's leading literary nonprofits, offering a wide array of online creative writing classes for all levels and genres. Online classes are offered seasonally. Find out how to register at loft.org. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Solitaire by Dennis Norris II and Purple Jesus by Karen Bernardo. Solitaire, written by Dennis Norris II, read by Mark Rushton. Listing time, 3 minutes 57 seconds. A storm is coming, and Luke's made sure we have everything we'll need. Enough dry food to get through the week, a bathtub filled with tap water, flashlights, batteries, extra blankets. If it were up to me, it would be nothing but condoms and booze. But Wyoming Luke is serious about survival. He wants to board up the windows, but I've asked him not to. I want to watch as Third Avenue becomes a small river, as coffee cups and plastic bags and even wayward umbrellas emerge from the canal and float like spirits down the street. This isn't the kind of affair where he tells me he loves me. He doesn't buy me gifts or promise to leave his wife. He doesn't miss me when I'm not around or pursue me when I don't answer his texts. Wyoming Luke is with me because Hannah is visiting her sister in Arizona. He's protecting us because he wants to get back to her. I'm Luke's first man. The night we met, he bought me a drink in a jazz club. He led me to his apartment, his calloused hand on my back, his lips breathing the singer's tune into my neck. Once we were at his place, I was bold enough to pull his clothes from his body to remove his wedding band before slipping his finger into my mouth. But then he pushed me to my knees. He covered my mouth, pulled my hair, gripped my neck. He made sure I knew who was boss. Afterward, he held me through the night, pulling my cheek to his chest, entangling his legs with mine, at random moments kissing my neck or nibbling my ear. In the morning, he told me not to call him. My wife, he said. When I came to New York, I wanted a scrappy town, a place where bad things could happen. I wanted to live in a place where you could never get too far from destruction. The brownstone behind my apartment has a back porch. Mannequins clutter its roof. I look at them every day. Six moldy torsos. A trash can full of heads. But it's the limbs that interest me most. Here an upturned foot. There a knee bed at 90 degrees. All frozen as though photographed alive. In motion. In some way, each mannequin manages to touch the one next to him. When I look at them, I think of vacation nights spent with my cousins as children. Five of us crammed into one bed, determined not to fall asleep, though we eventually tired of each other and slept like death, until the rancid smell of chitterlings woke us. We clambered from the bed, rubbing our eyes, covering our noses, running from Grandma's house into the brightness of the Carolina sun. I sit cross-legged in a chair and watch as Wyoming Luke plays solitaire by candlelight. His fingers expertly shuffle and pile the cards as he deals himself another hand. You want to play? he asks. Outside, the wind screams and the rain pounces. He doesn't wait for me to answer before he starts playing again. I get up and go to the kitchen. 
I open a bottle of Cabernet and pour one-third of it into a freshly cleaned balloon glass. I hear Wyoming Luke in the living room every time he slaps the table as he places each card. Through the window, I watch the neon sign for the auto body repair shop that hangs across the street. It moves more violently than I've ever seen. I wonder if it will fall to the ground and shatter, sparks shooting from it, dying in the water that amasses in the streets, or if it will continue as before, hanging, slow swinging, its movement sparse. A storm is coming, and I have everything I'll need. If Luke stopped playing card games, rested his long arms against the back of the couch, spread his legs and nodded at me, I'd be immediately in front of him, on my knees. Instead, I drink my wine and watch as he plays on, the steady sound of the cards landing against the coffee table, Wyoming Luke, who touches me like the mannequins. Dennis Norris II is a graduate of Haverford College and holds an MFA from Sarah Lawrence College. He has won several awards and fellowships for his short fiction from the Vermont Studio Center, the Hurston Wright Foundation, and the NYS Summer Writers Institute. He lives in Brooklyn, where he is working on a novel. This is his first publication. Purple Jesus, written and read by Karen Bernardo. Listening time, 11 minutes, 34 seconds. Purple Jesus. After work, she read catalogs at the kitchen table, absently fingering the necklace at her throat. He stood opposite her and went through the mail, stacking the opened bills to his left, dropping the junk mail and empty envelopes on his right. Every third or fourth envelope would stray onto the glossy pages of the catalog she was reading, and she would sweep her hand across the page to brush the obstruction away. There was a rhythm to his opening, stacking, and dropping. When he broke the rhythm to stare at a particular piece of mail, she looked up curiously. Catching her eye, he tossed the envelope in her direction. This bud's for you. She glanced at the designation. Resident. The return address was St. Andrew's Church. Farther down, bold text promised, You are about to be blessed. Her eyebrows contracted. Why would you think it's for me? I don't get blessings, he answered. Only because you throw them away. He leaned over and kissed her lightly on the forehead. Au contraire, he said. Like the rest of my worldly possessions, I give them all to you. She laughed and opened the envelope. Inside there was a letter, and surprisingly, a rendering of Jesus in soft, violet tones. Puzzled, she turned to the letter for an explanation. At first glance, the letter read, it will seem that Christ's eyes are closed. But if you still your mind, you will see his eyes slowly open, and he will meet your gaze. The Lord sees your every need. She gazed back at the picture. A smudged tear streaked Jesus' cheek, but he seemed asleep. She tipped her head slightly, moving the drawing in and out of focus, narrowing her eyes to a slant of lash. Jesus' eyes remained resolutely closed. It's an optical illusion, her husband said. 
She looked up at him sharply. The eyes, he said. By now he had picked up the stack of sorted bills and was using them as a pointer. My grandma had one of those in her bedroom. Scared the living, well, bejesus out of me when I was a kid. Just when you think he's sleeping, he's following you around the room. She looked back at the picture. Nothing. Her husband's footsteps retreated up the stairs, and she heard him booting up the computer. It would take him about half an hour to do the magical juggling act that resulted in happy creditors. Holding the drawing in both hands and stretching her arms out straight, she rested her chin on the table so that the purple Jesus was about two feet from her face. The gold cross at her throat slipped out from the edge of her cardigan, coming to rest on the edge of the table. Lord, she said aloud. Her husband came to the head of the stairs. Did you want something? No, she called back, sitting up self-consciously. I'm okay. Why couldn't she see it? The Lord sees your every need, the letter said. If you couldn't see Jesus, could he see you? When she was a little girl, her parents had gone through a religious phase. That's what they would call it later on when they'd returned to their secular lives and spoke of that time as a strange aberration of their time together. But during that year, they had bundled up their three kids every week and taken them to the Baptist church on the corner. There, the Sunday school teachers would talk about people with strange-sounding names and things that could never have actually happened. Plagues of frogs and blood-red seas and walls that fell down when you blew a trumpet at them. And Jesus. Jesus who loved you no matter what, even when your parents were mad at you and had every good reason to be. But Jesus wasn't mad. He was disappointed but he understood, because he'd once been a child, a human being himself. She always clung to that, long after the cinematic image of the teeming frogs had faded into absurdity. In college, she bought her first cross at an 8th Avenue shop that sold Irish imports. It was silver, intricately wrought, a Celtic cross, the juncture of post and beams surrounded by a halo. She'd worn it every day for years, until just last month when it slipped off its chain and went down the drain with the bathwater. It was only then that she realized how often she'd reached for it, warming it in her palm as she talked on the phone, musing over her computer, thinking, planning, worrying... She tried wearing a locket, but it wasn't the same. It was silly, she knew, but it was such a small thing, a lovey. And when she saw a gold one on sale in the window of the jewelers on Vine Street, she'd gone inside and bought it. It wasn't a Celtic cross. This was a tiny pendant with a birthstone in the center. But it was Jesus, just the same. Now, Palming the new cross and staring at the purple-shaded drawing, she felt a little betrayed. She wore his token over her heart. Why wouldn't he look at her now?
she picked up the letter that had come in the packet and read it more thoroughly. It turned out she could only keep Purple Jesus for this one night. After she'd used the drawing in prayer, the letter said, St. Andrew's Church needed it back, so they could send it to another family. In this way, its powerful blessings would go all around the world. She flipped the sheet over. At the bottom, there was a checklist of concerns for which she might need prayer. Health? She was in excellent health, so no. To stop a bad habit? She didn't think she had any. She didn't need a better job or a new car, and she already had a home. But money now, that was a different thing. Money would solve everything, wouldn't it? She put three checks by that one. And then the last, to be saved. Did she want to be saved? She had never quite understood that question. If she were on a desert island, she'd want to be saved, of course. But here she was in a warm kitchen on a cold January evening. The floor seemed quite solid, and her warm, solid husband was upstairs, his fingers clattering on the keyboard that kept food in the refrigerator and money in their pockets. She wasn't sure what she'd need saving from. Her pen was hovering over that question when the keyboard clattering slowed and then stopped, and she heard her husband's footsteps on the stairs. She shoved Purple Jesus and all his accessories into the leaves of the catalog, just as her husband appeared in the kitchen doorway. His face was troubled. Honey, did you write a check to Vandermark's for thirty-seven ninety-nine? The jeweler's. Yes, I did, actually, last week. I thought you were going to tell me when you did that. Her heart sank. Did it bounce? No, but it's the last week of the month, you know. The mortgage is due, and we don't get paid until Friday. And in the meantime, we're going to have to get gas and buy groceries. And we're meeting Dan and Sue for drinks on Wednesday night. We could have Dan and Sue over here. He closed his eyes, like Jesus, and when he opened them again, they were soft with disappointment. Never mind. I'll figure something out. Put the groceries on the credit card, maybe. Just try not to write checks without telling me. I promise. She knew what he was thinking. She'd promised last time when it was a bottle of Asti Spumante and some little butter cookies, and the time before that when it was a purse. She was always promising because she was always wanting, and she didn't even know what she wanted. He went back upstairs. Her eyes stinging with shame, she seized the catalog and shook it violently over the tabletop until the interleaved pages fluttered free. Purple Jesus slept on. But now she thought she could see the corners of his mouth tucking upwards in the slightest hint of a smile, as if he were dreaming. She wondered if he saw her in his dreams. I need you, she whispered softly. 
She palmed the gold cross, the metal warming in her hands. I screw up all the time, and I'm so sorry. But I just need you to know I'm here. Purple Jesus gave no indication that he heard. Seizing the pen, she checked the box next to I want to be saved and shoved the picture and the letter back into the envelope provided for their return. Not bothering to put on a coat, she flew out the door into the January night, heading for the mailbox to get Purple Jesus into the hands of someone who knew how to pray, someone who knew what salvation was. The stars loomed overhead in the crisp, cold sky like a thousand eyes, their intelligence brilliant and hard as diamonds, and she ran sobbing down the street, having no idea how much she was loved. Karen Bernardo is the director of the Coburn Free Library in Oswego, New York. She loves creating a haven where literacy and creativity are valued. Listener-supported Boundoff is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Boundoff. Copyright Boundoff and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories. <laughs>